This presentation is from Design Research 2021, day one. Uh, so thank you for, first of all, for taking the time to listen to my talk at this year's UX Australia conference. And I'd also like to thank the members of the UX community that reviewed this year's talk proposals and also the conference organizers, including me in the conference program. I'm really excited to be here. Um, and I hope, and I will also do my best not to waste this opportunity. So I hope that what I have to share today offers new insights to all the attendees and listeners, um, maybe getting them feeling inspired or provoked, uh, maybe uh, equipping you with new stories to share with others or even new methods and perspectives that you maybe could use in your next design project. Uh, you're welcome to post about my talk and share screenshots on social media. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can tag me with Martin Tom. Due to the current COVID-19 lockdown down here in Sydney, I'm giving this talk from my home office, which is located on Gadigal land. We don't see things as they are, we see things as we are, which is why I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge my cultural background, which provides a framing for what I'm sharing today. My heritage is a mix of Middle and Eastern European. I grew up in Austria on a farm, and while growing up in a relatively remote village was at times a bit challenging, I consider myself privileged and acknowledge that I have had opportunities, like completing a PhD and traveling the world, that others from disadvantaged backgrounds, minority groups, and people with severe disabilities would not have had. So while I was studying uh, at the Vienna University of Technology uh, Informatics, I was drawn to human-centered design as I saw it as a way to make technology work better for people. Like many that chose and choose to become UX designers, I found a sense of fulfillment in thinking that I was able to represent those that didn't have a direct voice in the design process. I'm talking about users or the end consumers of products, of course. And most people listening to this talk will know and are well-versed in how to collect data from users that helps us to understand the needs, which is then fed into the design process. To know whether we were successful in addressing those needs and desires, we commonly measure things like user satisfaction. I imagine that everyone in the audience and listening to this talk would have gone through this kind of process in practice in some way. Some might also have con consciously considered other stakeholders, sometimes referred to as secondary stakeholders. These are people that don't directly interact with the design product, but have an indirect stake in it. The experience of some of those secondary stakeholders may also be affected by the design of the product. For example, doctors using digital, digital applications while communicating with patients, the experience that the patient has is indirectly affected by the way a doctor as a user is interacting with the product. Now, my question for you is, have you ever considered non-human stakeholders in your designs? Like living things other than humans that may be affected by the products and experiences that you design. You might think when you hear this, well, no, because that's something that only designers of physical things like objects and buildings need to care about. My goal is to convince you during the next 30 minutes that we also need to care about the impact of our design decisions on the environment, even when we're designing completely digital applications. 
in order to get the full 360-degree perspective of our stakeholders. User-centered design, now also commonly referred to as human-centered design, is of course a core foundation in UX design. We are taught that every design decision that we make should be grounded in research about the people we are designing for. It's now also widely accepted that for an innovation or a new product to be successful in a market, we need to consider the three perspectives that capture the technology aspects, the business considerations, and the human values. So as UX designers, our job is to focus on the human values. We make sure that the products are not only usable, but also desirable, that they address some real needs or pain points. Unfortunately, there is some mounting evidence of the negative impacts of human-centered design on society and the planet. Design decisions are made on short-term perspectives and often the company's profits and the wealth of its shareholders seem to drive those decisions. The user in a way becomes the product and human-centered design a mechanism to monetize them in the most effective and efficient way. And I don't know about you, but this is certainly not why I had subscribed to human-centered design as a philosophy. As Mike Montero, who gave a keynote at UX Australia in 2017 puts it, the world is working exactly as designed and it's not working very well, which means we need to do a better job of designing it. Encouraged by Mike Montero's book, Ruined by Design, I wanted to believe in the power of design. So as I took on the chair role for the 2020 Australian Conference on Human-Computer Interaction, referred to as OSCI, we decided to flip the provocation and use the conference as a way to explore how design could save humanity from further disaster. I found myself in Perth at OSCA 2019, uh, that was of course before COVID happened, announcing the theme for the 2020 conference, which was, going, was supposed to happen in Sydney. I felt positive and hopeful. The world, it seemed, was finally waking up, inspired by a Swedish girl, people around the world were marching and standing up for the planet. And it was about time. The bushfires were already raging in Australia's east in December of 2019. But at that time, we didn't yet know that it would be one of Australia's most devastating bushfire seasons. The sky changed its color and ash was falling from the sky in Sydney. And now we see similar images from the Northern Hemisphere with wildfires across the US Canada, Europe, and Russia. While once-in-a-lifetime floods have hit Belgium, Germany, and China. And of course, there was this. The reason we all joining UX Australia remotely this year. A virus that infiltrated all parts of our worlds, disrupting how we work, learn, and live, with devastating effects on many countries, communities, and people. And these events are all connected. As Richard Edinburgh stated in the Netflix documentary, the Australian wildfires and COVID-19 were a wake-up call. And infectious diseases that come from animals are a sign of an unhealthy planet. Of course, the origin of COVID-19 is still being debated, 
But there are other virus outbreaks that are more obviously linked to climate change, like the anthrax outbreak five years ago in the far north of Russia. The virus spread into the local communities emerging from an infected reindeer carcass that had been frozen in ice for 75 years, thought during a heat wave in 2016. Scientists are warning us that these are signs of more severe events to come. We've entered a new geological era called the Anthropocene. This new age is defined by the observation that our climate is changing due to the impact of humans on the world, rather than through change prompted by nature. Human-made stuff now outweighs all life on Earth. And the planet is responding to the impact we have on its biosphere. Actually, the planet will be fine, even if you do nothing. It might take a few billion years to recover, but it will survive. In other words, the planet will always bounce back. But humanity might not be there to witness this. Climate change is finally taken seriously because we experience its impact firsthand. We care and take notice on a very personal level. And there are many things we can do to reduce our impact on, in our personal lives. But why do we as a UX community need to pay attention and take action? When we think of carbon emissions, we think of things like air travel, probably, pollution from road traffic and designed objects, most of which are made at least to some extent of plastic. We don't think of digital consumption. If you had to guess, which of those things that you can see here on the screen do you think have an impact on the environment? That's right, a sales force which has invested in environmental strategies for years Reminded us recently on Twitter, believe it or not, all of these things have an impact on the environment. The more digital applications people use in their daily lives, the more they contribute to carbon emissions. As UX designers, we therefore need to critically ask ourselves, are we driving digital consumerism, which then in turn is accelerating climate change? Estimates are that digital consumption accounts for up to 3.7% of global greenhouse emissions. 60% of that goes into streaming videos. Aviation, in comparison, only accounts for 2.4%. And I should say that those are figures from before the pandemic. Even simple acts like sending emails add up and contribute carbon emissions. As a study found, if every adult in the UK sent one less thank you email, you could save more than 16,000 tons of carbon a year, the equivalent of taking more than 3,000 diesel cars off the road. Now here's a reframed question for UX designers. Rather than making it easier to send emails, can we encourage users to send fewer emails? The rise of cryptocurrency is further adding to the carbon emissions produced through server farms and data centers, 
And as a recent study claimed, Bitcoin might soon consume more power than all of Australia combined as a country. At the UX meetup last night, the mega meetup last night, someone pointed out this book by Jerry McGowan, which covers some of those issues in a lot more detail, talking about the physical side of the digital world and what we as consumers can do about it. There are, of course, many things we can do on an individual level to reduce our personal footprints. But uh, what I want to propose in this talk is how we can systematically address this issue through the work we do as the architects of digital experiences. Of course, these things are complex to calculate, figures keep moving, and different studies come to different conclusions. In other words, it's difficult to understand all the details and how they are connected, which is why we need new tools. It is no longer acceptable that we talk about innovation without considering the impact on the environment. The mantra that innovation sits at the nexus of desirability, feasibility, and viability is no longer sufficient. Some academics argue that we even need to replace what is viable in the business sense with what is responsible in a moral sense. But as Steve Bately reminded us in his opening keynote this morning, we unfortunately live in a capitalist society. And while we live in a world where capitalism is the predominating political and economic system, I don't think that it's possible to fully replace what is viable in a business sense with what is responsible in a moral sense. So instead of replacing the viability perspective, I argue that we need to add a fourth dimension to consider the environmental and ethical values and to highlight that when we make design decisions. And UX designers are ideally equipped to become these custodians of this perspective. UX designers already work across disciplinary boundaries, bringing together different perspectives and areas of knowledge and synthesizing them into key considerations. Other academics around the world have also started to call for a new approach, arguing for moving towards more than human participation and decentering the human in the design process. Practitioners similarly have published various ideas by articles on medium.com for how we can move beyond human-centered design, proposing different kinds of new paradigms. If you look beyond the field of UX, there are many more different kinds of approaches. What many of these new paradigms have in common is a reminder that we need to more carefully consider living systems when we make design decisions. We've done some research about this here at the University of Sydney with two of my colleagues, Madeleine Borthwick and Melinda Goffin. Drawing on the field of policy planning, we are working on establishing tested principles to shift beyond human-centeredness in interaction design practice. And in this talk today, I will focus on three methods specifically that offer tools for supporting this new kind of design practice. The methods are also included in the second edition of our Handbook of Design Methods that we published with some of my colleagues from the University of Sydney and other from other universities um, earlier this year. The second edition includes 80 methods 
along with free templates and resources that are available from the book's companion website. And an introduction to life-centered design. The first tool for life-centered design is using the well-known Bessonius method to represent what we refer to as non-human stakeholders in the design process. I personally first encountered non-human stakeholders while working on interaction design projects for urban environments, designing what we call city apps. I've talked about my research in this area in my previous UX Australia talks in 2011 and 2014. And I also published a book on the topic for anyone who is interested in this field. We were doing a trial of one of our city apps called the Tetrapin on our university campus. The installation playfully addresses the issue of littering by turning the act of putting rubbish into the bin into a Tetris-like game. So one day I received a distress call from the campus operations team early in the morning telling me that Ibises had decided to interact with our bin. Turns out we hadn't considered how our digital intervention would interact with urban wildlife. A few weeks ago, I found out that we weren't the only ones being caught up by Australian urban wildlife and their interactions with digital applications in the public space. I was chatting to Matt Boiska from Tektronics, uh, one of our industry partners. They are, they are a manufacturer of digital billboards uh, and based in South Dakota in the US. Matt told me that as they began to install more of the billboards across Australia, they realized that cockatoos really enjoyed taking the LEDs apart, causing significant damage. The stories didn't end there. One of Tecatonic's technicians was surprised finding an iguana who climbed up on the mesh structure and was hanging out on the top of the building 25 meters up in the air. And they've even encountered snakes using the media facade structures to climb up buildings. If you look closely, you can see a snake right here on the edge of the building. So last year, one of my colleagues, Joel Fredericks, set up and worked with a capstone research student, Dan Bo, to investigate how we can design digitally enabled urban interventions that consider both human and non-human stakeholders from the outset. The case study focused on parklets, which are increasingly deployed in cities uh, around the world uh, and often include things like solar panels and charging stations. Uh, here in Sydney, you might have seen them, for example, around Bonner Junction and, and Bondi. So based on existing reports and literature, Joel and Dan identified who the directly and indirectly affected stakeholders might be when it comes to parklets in a city like Sydney. After creating the personas, they then put them to use in facilitated, facilitated design workshops, which then influenced the design decisions that led to the final proposal for a digitally enabled parklet. Based on this exploratory study, we have subsequently developed a template for creating non-human personas, which is included in our design methods book. We haven't made this publicly available yet, but if you're interested, you can also access the mirror version of this template via this link or the QR code shown here on this slide. 
And here is what the template looks like uh, when it's completed using the possum from the park, Parklet study as an example. One of the challenges when creating non-human personas is, of course, collecting accurate data about the represented living being. We can't quite go out there and easily interview possums, and it's also difficult to observe non-human stakeholders, living beings in the natural environment. So instead, this can be done like in the Parklet study, for example, by drawing on existing reports and articles. But to use the tool to its full power, we also suggest to create a coalition of representatives that are able to speak on behalf of the non-human stakeholder. To achieve this, we adapted an approach that my colleague Joel Fredericks developed as part of his PhD research for community engagement, which we refer to as middle out. So the idea is to identify relevant bodies from the top as well as from the bottom. The coalition can then be brought together through facilitated workshops to represent the non-human stakeholders in the design process and to act as a voice for the living being represented in that persona. We also developed a framework for developing non-human personas, which is currently under review for publication in a journal. And this, work, this is work that also involved some of my other colleagues, including Jessica Frawley from the University of Sydney and Marcus Fott from QUT. Let's look at an example that is maybe closer to what people here in the audience might be working on. If we are designing a screen-based application that includes streaming of video content or the transfer of large files in some other way, we need to ask ourselves what we know about the data centers, for example, used to support these transactions. Depending on the location of the data centers and where the energy for its operation is coming from, there may be different living systems that are affected. How can we represent those as non-human personas? And who are the bodies that we can draw on to form a coalition? And in most cases, each non-human stakeholder and its person their personas will need their own coalition. If this is still somewhat abstract, how about this example? Quite likely everyone's business has been affected by COVID-19. The implications of COVID-19, like working from home, homeschooling and lockdowns, also affect how people use the products that we design. So this is a great example for how we could use the non-human personas framework to capture the virus and its behavior. This then allows us to consider these things in the design of our products. And it might also lead to new kinds of human personas, like the parent that is working full-time while homeschooling their children. If you're interested to learn more about this topic, here are some references to other related works, including the use of animal personas, ecosystemers, which use the personas concept to represent entire ecosystems. And around this, Steve, are you giving me a timer warning? No, I'm being oh. ready. I've got a 45 minute session, right? Mm. Okay. Good. My timer is 20, 22 minutes so far. I'll keep going. <laughs> uh, and around the same time, when we were sending our book to our publisher, 
Uh, Monica Snell also published a great piece about non-human personas on medium.com. So the second tool for life-centered design are uh, systems maps. Systems maps have been used in complex systems thinking for a long time, of course, but there have been an underutilized tool, I believe, in UX. So I argue that we need to start using tools like systems maps in order to help us with understanding the complex networks within which the things we design exist. This is also a way to move in a way beyond human-centeredness. And as Stefano Mancuso, who is an Italian botanist and professor at the University of Florence said, life is not a human-centered affair, but a complex network. So systems maps have been used in complex problems like human health, for example. And to see how this is used in practice, let's hear from Professor Steve Simpson, who is the director of the Charles Perkins Center here at the University of Sydney. And Steve, now that I can see you, maybe you can give me a thumbs up if the sound is coming through okay. This has been called the spaghetti map. Um, and it's a spaghetti map in every respect. What it is, is it shows the probability of you as an individual, and you're right at the middle of the map, of going into positive energy balance. And that puts you at risk of developing overweight and obesity. And this is a, a system of all of the directly or indirectly um, influencing elements in the whole of society that might impact your probability of becoming overweight and obese. So as you can imagine, building a systems map requires an understanding of a lot of disciplines. And before earlier, before we already uh, noticed that understanding the impact of digital consumerism is quite complex. So I'm not saying that as UX designers, we need to be across all of this. But as UX designers, we are already trained in engaging people and bringing them together through facilitated workshops. And that's how we can use participatory systems mapping, which is a variation of systems mapping that brings together diverse stakeholders to co-create a map. And it's even something that can be done remotely during times of lockdowns using digital whiteboards uh, like Miro, as you can see here. Being able to understand the networks and the interactions is also a good starting point when it comes to identifying the unintended consequences of our designs, which is what the third tool, the Impact Triple Canvas, is used for. So the Impact Triple Canvas allows us to think beyond what we are trained and used to seeing by visualizing unexpected connections. This in turn helps us to understand how certain actions may trigger unintended consequences. The method was developed by Manuela Taboada and some of her colleagues for, for the QUT chair in digital economy. And Manuela contributed the method and the template to our book. The template is available for free from the book's companion website. And again, we haven't made the mirror version publicly available yet, but you can access it via this QR code. So in the Impact Triple Canvas, you start by writing down a proposed design action or a new design in the center. 
We then subsequently note down any direct impacts and building on those, we then identify the indirect and the big picture impacts. And this includes both positive and negative impacts using different colored sticky notes. So now that we have covered some tools, let's take a look at a few specific UX examples. These are speculative examples that I created for the purpose of this talk. So they're meant to be somewhat provocative and would of course require a lot more research and testing. The first example addresses the issue of carbon emissions associated with video streaming applications like Netflix. Why not empower the user to make an informed decision about the quality in which they want to watch a film? For example, this could look something like this. A study that was published in January found that streaming content in standard definition rather than in high definition using apps such as Netflix could reduce carbon emissions by up to 86%. The second example addresses online shopping sites. So you might have experienced this yourself and you order multiple items from the same shop and they all arrive individually. Adding packaging and emissions associated with the delivery person, having to chop them each off individually at your address. Can you empower the user to make a decision about whether they'd be happy to wait for a little bit, but have all items delivered at the same time when they're ready to be shipped? Which would include just a few more fields in the checkout form. And as a third example, this is an existing app called Good On You. The app allows users to look up specific shops and to learn more about their environmental and ethical practices. It also lets users to search for alternative shopping sites based on those rankings. So you could think of ways to integrate this functionality into shopping sites like Amazon, enabling consumers to make shopping decisions based on this information. Or taking this a step further, maybe we need a health star rating for apps. Similar to how we have a food health star rating here in Australia, how about a planetary health star rating that comes with each app that makes the impact that the app has on our environment transparent to users? As I said earlier, we can't leave the business perspective out. And anyone trying to make a case for life-centered design and considering non-human stakeholders in a design process will likely face pushback because of the additional time and resources this requires. But we need to ask ourselves, are we really measuring the right KPIs? Is user satisfaction all that matters to our users? Or are we missing important parts of the picture? Studies are reporting that the expectations of consumers and other stakeholders are changing due to a growing awareness of climate change. As a recent article found, stakeholders are demanding accountability from companies to address negative impacts and to go beyond mitigation and demonstrate positive environmental and societal benefits. So maybe that is an argument you could use with your manager or business developer. Companies who are already investing in sustainable business models that consider both business outcomes and environmental outcomes 
are increasingly found to be outperforming the competitors. Again, looking at these benefits, we need to ask ourselves, are we measuring the right KPIs when it comes to improving the experience that people have with our products? I would say that at least half of those elements we can see here are directly influenced by UX design. It's clear that we need to shift to a new paradigm in UX. There are many different terms that have been proposed and that offer a philosophical direction for how we can do this. But it doesn't really matter what we call this new approach. What matters is how we integrate these considerations into our practice. So we need to ask ourselves, are we addressing all the stakeholders that are either directly or indirectly affected by our design decisions, including any non-human stakeholders? We need to critically question whether we have the full picture before making our design decisions. Are we getting a 360 degree perspective of all stakeholders? Non-human personas, systems maps, and the impact triple canvas are some of the new tools that we as UX designers can use to make sure our designs consider a holistic 360 degree perspective. A perspective that is both inclusive and far-reaching. While what I have shared today may still seem somewhat theoretical and speculative, it is time to start changing our practice now. As advocates for users and other stakeholders, we as the UX community have the power to drive the systemic change. Thank you very much for listening.